Welcome to Bizarre to Brutal, featuring true crimes and scandals that were reported in the hugely popular Victorian newspaper, The Illustrated Police News. What follows are the actual reports from that time. But first, a warning. The writers sometimes didn't hold back from giving the most intimate details of these events. But if you can stand it, you'll get a revealing insight into Victorian life and uncensored human nature. So let's walk back through the mists of time. Eleventh of December, eighteen sixty-nine. A duel between ladies. We have heard enough lately of women being thrust forward into positions which, for very many reasons, they are by nature and education totally unfitted for. The female medical society still has existence and furnishes diplomas to a select number of lady practitioners. Mr. Stuart Mill. And an infinitesimally small portion of the British public still dream, we believe, of female voters. Much as we admire, esteem, and love the ladies, we do not hold with the doctrine, which, if carried out, would place them in a false position. Albeit, we frankly confess that living as we do in a fast age, we are naturally enough prepared for anything. The last novelty, to use the words of an intelligent draper, is a passage of arms of an exceptional character: a duel fought by ladies. To most readers, this will seem impossible. Nevertheless, if we are to believe the Galois, the impossible has occurred. Two fair Parisians of high societal position lost their hearts at the same time. To a handsome Hungarian, and this gave rise to mutual jealousies and misunderstandings. The amiable creatures could not settle their disputes in the way usually in vogue among women, but thirsted for each other's blood. The result was that a duel was fought with pistols in the garden of a hotel in the Rue Montaigne. Both the combatants were to fire at a given signal. This being the fall of a white pocket handkerchief, which one of the female seconds held out to the anxious gaze of the principals, probably the unaccustomed position in which the combatants found themselves made their hands tremble. Anyhow, no harm came of the duel. Let us hope, however, that the example set will not be very extensively followed. It is all very well for women to demand the suffrage and other supposed rights. Dueling, they had better consider the exclusive right of the rougher sex. Eleventh of December, eighteen sixty-nine. A wife driven insane by her husband tickling her feet. On Thursday last week, 
a very serious charge was preferred against a man named Michael Pockridge, who resides at Wimbush, a small village in Northumberland. The circumstances, as detailed before the Board of Guardians, are of a harrowing nature. It appears that Puckridge has lived very unhappily with his wife, whose life he has threatened on more than one occasion. Most probably, he had long contemplated the wicked design which he carried out but too successfully about a fortnight since. Mrs Puckridge, who is an interesting-looking young woman, has, for a long time past, suffered from varicose veins in the legs. Her husband told her that he possessed an infallible remedy for this ailment. She was induced by her tormentor to allow herself to be tied to a plank, which he placed across two chairs. When the woman was bound and helpless, Puckridge deliberately and persistently tickled the soles of her feet with a feather. For a long time, he continued to operate upon his unhappy victim, who was rendered frantic by the process. Eventually, she swooned, whereupon her husband released her. It soon became but too manifest that the light of reason had fled. Mrs Puckridge was taken to the workhouse, where she was placed with the insane patients. A little girl who lived in the house, niece of the ill-used woman, spoke to one or two of the neighbours, saying her aunt had been tied to a plank and that her uncle, so she believed, had cruelly ill-treated her. An inquiry was instituted, and there is every reason to believe that Mrs Puckridge had been driven out of her mind in the way already described. But the result of the investigation is not yet known. In all probability, the case will be brought forward in one of our law courts, when we shall be at liberty to enter more fully into the details. Eighteenth of December, eighteen sixty nine. A real tragedy on the stage. Great consternation was caused at Angolem a night or two ago by the violent death of two persons in the Alizar Theatre. The audience was assembled and waiting for the performance to begin when a double detonation was heard behind the scenes. On inquiry, the intelligence was communicated that the stage manager, Monsieur Charles Glouzeau, had fired a pistol at Madame Helois Deborol, a singer, and wounded her so desperately that she died almost immediately. After the first shot, he was preparing to fire a second, when the carpenter, named Constantine, rushing forward to prevent the act, received the whole charge in the head, and expired on the instant. The murderer attempted to escape, but was arrested. He admits that he intended to destroy Madame de Barol, but declares that the second death was accidental. The unfortunate actress was only 27 years of age, whereas the other victim was an elderly man who leaves a large family. The cause is said to be jealousy.
1st of January 1870. The atrocious outrage at Yule. An extraordinary tragedy took place early on Wednesday morning last week at Yule, Surrey. A man named Thomas Huggett had been living with a woman named Lizzie Richardson for some months, and she left him, going to live with her sister, the wife of a carman named Spooner in West Street. There were also lodging in the house a South Western Railway Company's porter named Smith, another man and Spooner's two children. Huggett came down to Yule by the last train on Tuesday night and his strange appearance was noticed by the station master who ordered him out of the premises. He went, as subsequently confessed, and stole a bag of powder from Measures Sharp's Mills where he had worked as a carman some time ago. He hid himself in an outhouse and when the woman Richardson came down in the morning at three o'clock to get Spooner's breakfast, Huggett got into the house. She screamed and Spooner ran downstairs, stopping Huggett from following the woman. During a struggle between Spooner and Huggett, the latter broke away and threw the bag of powder into the fire. A fearful explosion took place, the wall of the next house being blown down. Huggett was blown through it, and Spooner so seriously injured that his life is despaired of. Huggett died at half past ten the same morning. Smith, who was in the house, was removed to Guy's Hospital, and Spooner to the Hot Pole, where he now lies in a dangerous state. The dead man, whose name is Thomas Huggett, had lived with the woman Richardson for about six months but why or when they parted has not transpired. He had been employed some time since in bringing kegs down from London to the powder mills of Mr John Carr Sharp and thus was well acquainted with the premises from whence he stole the powder with which he blew up the house. His body was much blackened and when Dr Barnes was called to him a few minutes after the explosion, he found him lying in the adjacent house having been blown through the partition wall and for some time could not be roused into consciousness. Upon the examination made in his dying condition, it was seen that he had a wound in his left side and since his death it appears to be between the fifth and sixth ribs, penetrating to the heart. There is also a scratch on the throat as if an attempt had been made to cut it. There was a knife found by Huggett's side and the blade corresponded to the wound which had penetrated to the heart. But how the wound was inflicted is at present a mystery. The man Spooner has made no statement as to the knife being in Huggett's hand at the time of the struggle. It is clear that Huggett could not have stabbed himself after the explosion, though if he had the knife in his hand, the stab might have been done by accident when the deceased was driven by the shock through the partition. Huggett had strewed the floor of the cottage with gunpowder, so that of his diabolical intention there can be no doubt. Twelfth of February, eighteen seventy. 
the woman with the iron mask. Extraordinary mode of restraining a drunken wife. A singular case has just been brought under the notice of the police magistrate of St Helier's, Jersey. John Leroy, watchmaker, about 60 years of age, was charged with having fixed his wife's head in a species of iron mask, or cage, on Saturday. The mask was produced in court. Its base consisted of a piece of wrought iron, about a quarter of an inch thick, formed into a ring, about eight or nine inches in diameter. The top was a similar ring, about six inches in width. These two rings were connected by means of seven vertical bars of strong loop iron, a couple of inches apart. The instrument, opened with a hinge in the front, was fastened at the back by means of a padlock and weighed three pounds. In the front part, immediately opposite the mouth, a piece of iron hoop had been placed horizontally to prevent the wearer from getting anything up to her mouth, though this, it appeared, was ineffectual, as, from the mask being rather too large, she had managed, during the short time she had it on, to turn it round on her head and drink a small glass of liquor. It appeared, from the evidence of the wife, that her husband forced the mask on her head for the first time on Saturday, when she was in a kneeling posture. She was seen in it by some of the neighbours, who went to the police and gave information and by their orders, the prisoner removed the mask. It seems that he had made no secret of the affair, having told some of the neighbours what he intended doing, and had even asked one of the witnesses to allow him to use her head as a model. It also came out in evidence that the prisoner had made a large box into a species of cage with iron bars, into which he was in the habit of placing his wife occasionally. One of the witnesses in describing the box said the wife had plenty of room in it and received no injury, though it was not the place for a woman to be in. The prisoner, who treated the affair with the greatest nonchalance, said he was not aware that by doing as he had, he was acting contrary to the law. His wife was so addicted to drunkenness that he did not know what to do with her. He had locked her up in the house and she had escaped by the windows in order to get drink. He had placed her five times in the general hospital, the workhouse, but all was of no use. She was incorrigible. His only desire was to put a stop to her drinking. The wife, who had a half-besotted appearance, admitted the truth of what her husband said, but added that it was her only fault. The magistrate advised the man to make his wife an allowance of five shillings per week and get a separation. Both of them agreed to this, and the prisoner was fined ten shillings for the assault, which he cheerfully paid. The mask was confiscated by order of the magistrate. You've been listening to Bizarre to Brutal. I'm Mark Capel. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, climb into your handsome cab and head over to bizarretobrutal.com to find out more. 
See you next time.